0: John 14, starting at verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and I've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I just want to say welcome here again. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the outreach pastor here. And uh, every Sunday we seek to look at the scriptures and uh, we believe that's the written word of God. We can learn about God from them. We try to submit ourselves to it. So my my job this morning is to help us to see God and see the truth of the gospel in the passage. Uh, if you're new here and you're interested in getting connected, we've got some cards in the pew right in front of you. You can uh, get involved or get connected or learn, um, you can fill that out and put it in our uh, collection bag that comes later on in the service. So just wanted to uh, offer that if, if this is your first time here. So as we get into this passage, I want to start by asking you a question. And the question is this, what is the most awesome experience you've ever had? And by that, I, I I don't mean, when I say awesome, I don't mean the typical sense of the word awesome that we would use, like, that Jeff is so awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, the true sense of awesome, which is, that's something that causes awe, where you've, you've almost been, like, struck in the moment by awe, this overwhelming sense of reverence or admiration. If you look back over your life, have you ever had a moment, have you ever been, like, stopped, where you just took something in and you were in awe. You know, it might have been a sunset or a sunrise, might have been looking at a mountain or looking over the ocean, maybe a starry night. Maybe it was the first time you looked at your child. Maybe it was when you saw your wife walking down the aisle on your wedding day. Or maybe it's a piece of art that struck you. You're not really sure why. Or maybe if you're like Darren or Chuck, it's when you look at a car and you're just in awe. Obviously, for me, this is something I experience every day when I look at Michelle. So (laughs) check that off there. So I mean, I really know what this is like. We're still in premarital counseling, just so you know. So figuring a few things out still. But, I, I mean, <laughs> I remember a clear moment in my life. Uh, when I was in Bible school, I went after high school, I went to, to Thetis Island, which is uh, a, a series of islands, part of a series of islands, just off of the coast between Vancouver Island and the coast of BC. And uh, there is, on the one side of the island, you're looking at Vancouver Island. But if you kind of hike to the other side, you could look... And you'd just look at the, the mountain range of the mainland. And for me, this was a, this was a time of um, significant growth in my life spiritually. And I, I, re- I remember re- routinely coming to this place and just looking over the ocean and the mountains. And just this sense of awe would overtake me. And so as you think about that moment maybe for your life, if you can think of maybe one time in your life, I wonder how, what did that do in you, if you can reflect on that a little bit. What, what did that produce in you? What was the feeling? What were the thoughts that came to you? Um, almost unexplainably, just because of the experience that you're either looking at or, or enjoying. I went to a, a discussion... At the University of Toronto on Friday night, this past Friday night, and uh, the organizers had invited three people in to share about the, this question, is there meaning in life? So they had three uh, pretty uh, pretty smart people come in, and from different perspectives, they had a, a Christian come in, his name is Dr. William Lane Craig, kind of gave a Christian response to this question. Uh, there was a, a Uh, another woman her name was uh, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein and she was from a naturalist or an atheist perspective and how she thinks about this question is there meaning in life and then there was a, a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto by the name of Jordan Peterson and he gave a response to this question as well and I don't really know where he is in his views of God uh, but he kind of came from a psychological perspective of how do we psychologically process this question? Is there meaning? And so it was something that he said that really stood out to me uh, during the evening. And he said, he said this. He said, the encounter with something truly admirable produces the instinct of awe. And that's not a rational instinct. It's an I- irrational instinct. But it's a marker that you're in the presence of something truly greater than yourself. And it's not something you have to voluntarily control, you have voluntary control over, it's something that overtakes you, and it could easily be because it's the reflection of the truth. I thought that was a really profound thought, that we can get in where before something, which he called truly admirable, and there's something that just kind of overtakes us, there's a feeling of awe that uh, not it's not something we're consciously choosing, it just kind of overwhelms us because what he's saying is that there, we're, ref, there's something in what we're seeing that's reflecting truth on a profound level and it's connecting to our hearts, even though we're not really thinking about it, but our hearts are kind of in agreement with this thing, that it's true. And we have an emotional response to the thing we're in the presence of. And so... I would, maybe to ask the same question at the beginning a little bit differently, so not have you ever had an experience, but if you can imagine, what would be the most awesome experience you could ever have? What is the thing that you could be in the presence of or look at and that would just fill you with awe beyond anything else you could ever imagine? What impact would that have on you if you were looking at the thing that was most truly awesome I wanted to uh, start there because the, the passage we're looking at this morning, these five verses, is just a little snippet of part of a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And it's centered around this question that Philip asks. And Philip asks Jesus the question, or he requests of Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And so in this passage, Jesus is, he's not, he's not with the crowds, he's not speaking to a whole group of people, he's kind of, he's aside with his disciples, and he's talking to them privately, and, you know, this is coming close to the end of Jesus' life. Uh, he's been with them for nearly three years, they know him well. He's taught them all sorts of things about himself, and about God, and what the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells them, earlier on in the beginning of chapter 14, he says, "I'm going to be, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going away, and uh, I'm actually going to prepare a room for you in a house. And you're going to join me, one day. You're going to join me. And this statement kind of creates a series of questions by the disciples because they're they're starting to panic a little bit. They're starting to freak out because they're just not really sure what Jesus is talking about, as they did." often they just were missing what jesus was actually talking about one of the things you have to keep coming back to um, about the disciples perspective as they were interacting and hearing the things that jesus was saying is that they they were believing that jesus was the messiah that he was the one that god had called to deliver them but their understanding of what deliverance was 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 uh, very misconstrued they 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 were believing wholeheartedly um, that Jesus was their deliverer, but they profoundly misunderstood what Jesus came to deliver them from. And so, very often, they they think that what Jesus is talking about is a deliverance of Israel from the oppressor Rome, that they're going to have the kingdom restored. The kingdom of God is like the kingdom of Israel finally restored and they're going to get they're going to experience the freedom from the oppression of Rome and finally they're going to be able to live the way that they ought to live in freedom that's what they were that's what they so many of them actually thought that that the messiah was going to do and so for Jesus to say something like oh by the way i'm about to leave and i'm going to i'm going to prepare a, a room in a house for you it's my father's house and that's you're going to come going to come meet me there. They're just what, like trying to process that with the idea that Jesus is going to be this military ruler that's going to rise up and deliver Israel from the largest empire in the world. How does that? How do those two ideas come together? It doesn't really make sense. And so they're starting to freak out a little bit. And so Thomas freaks out, and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? <laughs> that's Thomas's response, because Jesus is saying, by the way, you know the way to my father's house. And and Thomas is like, we don't know the way. We don't know. How can we meet you there if we don't know the way? Tell us the way. And of course, that's what Matt looked at last week when Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth, the way. And then right after uh, Thomas pipes up with his question and Jesus responds, Philip follows closely with, okay, that's fine. Uh, That's fine that you're leaving, but Lord, show us the Father and then that will be enough for us. That's his question to Jesus. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. That's fine if you have to go. That's fine, okay? We don't really know. We don't really get it. Don't get why you're going, what this room thing is all about. But if you could just show us God himself before you go, that would be a real encouragement to us. (laughs) Like, that would be an awesome experience to be able to stand in the presence of God and and. And be overwhelmed by that. That would be faith building. That would give you boldness and confidence. Even if you don't understand what Jesus is talking about. If you could just just let us see God. And that will be enough. That will be enough for us. Of course this is the same request that Moses gave to God. Many centuries before in Exodus chapter 33 it says, Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your people and all the other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know your name. And then Moses said, now then show me your glory. There's actually some interesting similarities in this that there's a sense that and Moses was feeling that God was going to leave them, and he's starting to freak out a little bit, and then he, in that, in that moment, he says, then show me yourself. Show me yourself. Just let me see you, and then I'll have the courage that I need to keep going into the life that you're calling me to. Now, there's something about this request that I think is really honoring to God. It's, it's saying that, You are the most admirable thing we could experience, that we could look at. That if only we could look at you, because we know how great you are, we know how incredible you are, you're the maker of the universe, I can't even fathom what it would be like to be in your presence, just give me that experience and that will be what I need. That will be what I need. And there's something honoring about that because it's rightly attributing to God what he is worthy of. And you can see that God is pleased with Moses in this request. But with Philip, Jesus responds a bit differently. And of course there's interpretation of tone and how you how you could read this response. But as I, I read it and as I read commentaries about it, I, I think it makes sense that Jesus is almost giving a bit of a, a bit of a rebuke a gentle rebuke, and I think there's even maybe a tinge of sadness in his response to Philip, where he says in verse 9, Philip, how long have I been with you, and you still don't know me? How long have I been with you, and you still don't know me? See, Philip longed to see God. That's what he wanted in that moment. I just want to see God. It was his preconceived ideas about what God is like that made him blind to what was right in front of him. Philip had been walking with God for 3 years. Straight, all the time they were together. They didn't just they weren't just friends for 3 years. They were spending a lot of time together. And Philip was missing it completely. One commentator said that Philip is exasperatingly ignorant. So that was a funny phrase. Another commentator, D.A. Carson, says, to the extent that the disciples have not yet grasped that in Jesus God has made himself known, they do not know Jesus himself sufficiently well. I think there's an important point here that we shouldn't miss. You can spend a lot of time with God and completely miss him. You could have grown up in the church hearing all sorts of true teaching and seen all sorts of miracles or acts of power from God and be completely blind to what God is like. Philip had true teaching after true teaching from God himself about what he was like. Philip saw miracle after miracle after miracle, and he just did not comprehend that he was looking at God himself. He still had a preconceived idea of what God was like, and it actually blinded him to the truth that was staring him in the eyes. And so, this truth that Jesus says in a couple of different ways, and actually in a couple of different ways in other parts of uh, the Gospel of John, is that when you look at Jesus, you look at God Himself. That's what you're looking at. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus says and responds to Philip, If anyone has seen me, they've seen the Father. When you look at me, you see the Father. Notice how he flips the language immediately. Philip asks, show us the Father. Jesus responds, do you not know me? Show us the Father, Jesus. Don't you know me? Jesus says, my Father and I are one. He is in me and I am in him. To know me is to know the Father. He says in in John chapter 8 that I don't do anything apart from him. That we're together, one, all the time. When you look at me, you are looking at God himself. There's no distinction. And so Jesus implies both what theologians call ontological unity, which is the unity of being, and functional unity, In that he is the way in which God is revealing himself to the world. The author has written himself into the story that he's writing so that all the characters can see and know this is what the author is like. We're looking at him. The story that's being written, it's him. He's the one writing it. We can see him. He's in our lives now. And so I'm sure you've heard these statements before. I'm sure to most of you, this isn't a new idea. That when you look at Jesus, you're you're looking at God. That Jesus shows us what God is like. I'm sure that's not a new new idea to you. Even if you're new to Christianity this morning, you probably have heard that that's that's an idea. That's kind of the part of the package of Christianity. But regardless of where you are in your agreement with this idea, I can guarantee you that there is a part of your heart and there is a part of my heart this morning that is not really believing that. That there's a part of us, our preconceived ideas, that's been shaped over our lives, that is blinding us to actually the truth that's right in front of us, that you may have studied your whole life. There's still a part of our hearts that's not really believing it. It's not really, it's not really saying yes, totally. I'm going to operate as if this is true. I was at Camp Crossroads last weekend for a junior high retreat, and uh, the speaker asked the crowd to discuss with their neighbor this question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? So he, he, asked, he said to the crowd, turn to your neighbor and discuss with your neighbor. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do that right now but it, after they had some discussion of who it is and then they all kind of gave their answers and there was a lot of really good answers a lot of really good answers there was a few answers that were just heartbreaking i can't remember the exact the exact word that was used but it was something like dictator that jesus is this person that just wants to dictate over your whole life and to just rule over you just kind of because he's the one in charge and you have to do whatever he says. And, and I, I, th- I think so many of our misunderstandings about God actually get formed when we're growing up. I think those ideas that we have when we're in grades six, seven, eight, and even younger don't actually fully leave us as we grow up. One of the things, so I I spent the I spent, well, I'm still involved in youth ministry. <laughs> But I've spent a lot of time working with youth ministry and I was always a little bit intimidated to transition out of youth because then now you're working with adults and they're so much more grown up and there's just different issues. But here's the incredibly helpful insight that I've learned. Adults are just big kids. <laughs> the same insecurities, the same things that affect a teenager actually don't really leave us. They just We just get better at hiding it. We get better at covering it up. And so I think there's so many experiences that we have when we have a kid that actually stick in our hearts and give us this image of God. That's just not true. It can be a bad experience with the church, it can be bad Bible teaching by those who are more concerned about legalism than they were about grace. It can be because you were hurt profoundly by someone that said they were a Christian. It could be that you had a terrible relationship with your parents. And we attribute a lot of that to God. It could be that you felt like God was distant from you in pain that you were going through when you were younger. In a world filled with brokenness of sin, there is so many ways that we can have a misconstrued view of God. There are so many ways that the truth of him can be twisted and shape how we respond to him. And how we, what, he, what we think he's calling us to. And God knows this. And that's why he took on flesh. That's why he made himself known and visible. Why the invisible God became visible. So that we could see with our own eyes. And we could read the pages of this record. It's why he preserved this record of his life. So that we could read it and see and know this is actually what God is like. This is actually what God is like. And so this morning, I know there's a lot of variety here in what we've experienced and what we've gone through and what shapes our thinking. But I I would be confident to say that there are some of you here that believe that that God is cruel in some sense, that he's delighting in the pain that you've gone through. There's a part of your heart that probably still believes that God is like a dictator or a tyrant and that he just kind of is concerned about making sure that you get the least amount of joy in your life as possible. Or that some of you might be believing that God is disinterested in you because you're boring. Or you might believe that God is distant from you because he just doesn't actually care about what's going on in your life. Some of you may believe that God is disgusted by you because of what you've done in your past. Some of you might believe that God is finished with you because you've struggled with the same thing for so long. But when we look at Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see a very different picture of what God is like. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is the one who goes to the prostitutes and those filled with the most shame. In a sense, he's saying, I know you and I love you. I'm going to put my body between the rocks and you this person filled with shame. I'm going to put, I'm going to stand between the rocks. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is the one who goes to the sick and the broken and says, "I'm going to take on death itself. I'm going to put that on me." So there's actually hope for you. There's hope and deliverance for you. Hope for healing. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is the one who takes the place of a murderer and lets himself be killed so that we can be freed from guilt. So that he can offer forgiveness to us. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is the one waiting with his arms open for you to come back to him. And at the same time, when you look at Jesus, you see that God is the shepherd running after you and you've wandered away from him. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is full of compassion and that he's tender. He knows your name. He's interested in you. He knows the thoughts of your heart. When you look at Jesus, you see that God is so filled with love for this world that he willingly allowed his life to be taken by people who hated him so that he could offer those same people life. Greg Clark (coughs) was a portfolio manager in New York in the 1980s. I heard this story recently in a podcast that I listened to. Uh, Gifted analytical mind. He, He had helped manage the financial portfolios of two secretaries of the treasury in the United States, 20 of the Fortune 500 CEOs, and he was actually the portfolio manager of George Bush. Just an incredibly smart man, incredibly successful, analytical thinker. That's, what his, that's kind of how his mind worked. He was a, he was a processor, a thinker, analyzing everything. <coughs> but there was also a piece of him that really admired beauty. And so he had kind of, uh, as to counter this like super analytical side of him, he, he got into art, and he started collecting art. And he had this kind of a famous art collection, and he had an eye for kind of predicting what would be the next uh, really successful pieces of art that would, that would go on to become famous, and Greg shares in this interview that for him, he got to a point that this analytical side of his brain just kind of took over, and he actually um, he lost the ability to appreciate art. That He said, I would look at this piece of art that once just produced a sense of awe in me, and I would look at it, and I would just see it, I would be analyzing it for a dollar figure trying to find this value that it would offer me. And he'd lost this sense of just resting in the awe of the thing before him, the beauty that was before him. And I think a lot of us get to this place with God, especially if you've grown up in the church, that we look at this beautiful thing that maybe at one point in your life produced a sense of awe, and maybe all you're just seeing is you're just seeing doctrinal statements. You're just seeing truth propositions or rules you have to follow. And you're missing the sense of awe that you, we should get when we look at God himself in the person of Jesus. It's really interesting to hear the testimony of, of Greg Clark. He was not a Christian. At the time, his wife was kind of cycling through all these different religions and she had landed on Christianity and she was pressuring her husband to just check out Christianity and and Greg's like, fine, I'll, I'll check it out. And his analytical mind went to work and he started processing all the, all the claims of Christianity. And he really focused in on the, the resurrection of Jesus. And he describes, and he, even in this interview, he gets emotional even talking about it again because in the moment he realized his analytical mind could not deny the fact that the best explanation for the claims of the resurrection of Jesus is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He said, I had this moment of realization where I just, I couldn't deny that that's what was happening. He said, and in that moment, that sense of awe which I had lost, that art once gave him, just overwhelmed him. And the truth of Jesus just overwhelmed him. And the grace that was offered to him in the life of Jesus overwhelmed him. And he said, I broke down. And he's been a Christian ever since. I know that it's very easy to lose that sense of awe. To to think that, you know, God just becomes ordinary or plain or just becomes all about this way in which we're living legalistically and that's just what it comes to. But this morning, I just want to challenge us again to look at Jesus again. That when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God you're looking at what God is like, the truest expression, the fullest expression that you could ever look at as to wonder what is God like? What is the maker of the universe like? Look at Jesus and you see. I want to leave you with an image on the screen and I I don't know if it's super clear. But I saw this this past week and I thought it was I thought that it was profound. I don't know if you can tell, there's a guy on a beach, he's got a metal detector. And he's got his head down, and he's looking madly for buried treasure. He's looking for this thing that's going to satisfy him, and his head is down, he's looking everywhere for this awe-inspiring thing. But he's missing this Amazing sunset that's right before him, full of beauty and glory. I just wanted to leave you with this image because I think this is what we do in our lives. We're frantically searching for this buried thing somewhere, this treasure that's going to give us what we think we want. And we're missing this glory, the glory of the sun that God has lifted up for us to see. Let's pray. So Father, thank you that you, you came down to show us what you're like. We know that you are, we can't even th- consider or fathom what a form of you would be like, but you've made yourself known to us in a way that we can understand and see. And so we thank you that even that fact alone shows how much you care about us and that you want to be known that you want us to see you. And so, Father, this morning, I pray for us that you would help us to see you better. We know that there's so many things going on in our hearts. There's so many ways in which we've been hurt. There's so many ways in which our own self-centeredness blinds us to what you're like. And so, Father, this morning, would you soften our hearts again? Would you help us to, to see again with fresh eyes? the beauty, the awesomeness that you have revealed in Jesus. Father, thank you that you love us, that you pursue us, that you're not disgusted by us, you're not disinterested in us, you're not distant, you are present, you care, you know our name. As I was reminded again this morning that you take pleasure in us, as Ephesians teaches us. You take pleasure in us. Father, convince us again of that truth.